0: What's going on, everybody? Welcome to another Whiskey, Web & Whatnot with your favorite hosts, Robbie and Chuck. Our guest today is Max Howell. How's it going, Max? That's good, thank you. Yeah, so for the folks who don't know who you are, could you give us a uh, couple sentences about who you are and what you do? Sure.
1: Well, my claim to fame for sure is Homebrew, the package manager, mostly for Mac, although it's pretty well on Linux and Windows to a certain extent nowadays which I made in 2009, quite some time ago. Basically a serial open source type person, continuously going back and forth between the commercial world and the open source world. Homebrew was my biggest success, but now I've started a new company, which effectively is a successor to Brew, with the basis that people like myself shouldn't be going back and forth between Open source and commercial work. Uh, open source should be funded in its own right.
0: Oh yes, I I totally agree with that, and am excited to get more into that later. But uh, before we do, so Chuck doesn't get grumpy, we will start with some whiskey here. <laughs> Too late. <Yeah. laughs> so we have uh, a couple different whiskeys. Uh, Max and I have this. Uh, I guess you won't be able, people won't see this. We don't <laughs> publish the video, but I'm holding it up. It's highway reserve and it's cool. It's uh, I didn't even realize this, but Chuck had told me that it is like similar to how Jefferson's Ocean is aged on a boat. This is aged in a truck, so it like drives around. Uh, they have a rolling rick house, they call it, and uh, it is 96 proof. It is a blend of four mash bills, which I won't read all of them off, but they're like everything mostly corn heavy. They're uh, all bourbons, I think. They are. Th- three years old, 13 years old and 15 years old or something like that.
2: So a lot of different ages, a lot going on. So we'll see how it is. Yeah. the idea of this whole motion thing, the bow to the truck thing is that that means the liquid is sloshing around the barrel and it's getting moved around a lot. So if it was just staying in a rick house, the middle would kind of be in the middle and not get absorbed into the barrel, but this way it gets all moved around. So. Sorry, were you saying something? Nah, not really. No, I don't <laughs> care. Uh, it's not important. I'm in Arizona, so I got an Arizona whiskey, uh, since I couldn't get that one. It's called Sacred Stave, and it is a high rye, meaning 28% of the mash bill is rye. We know nothing about the rest. It's at least 51% corn. No age statement, but it is 90 proof, so we'll see how this how my state here does. Cool. Well, cheers. And then, yeah, yeah. i just like if i i don't really listen to these later but um i like the idea if i did that i could hear this cool pouring sound later so yeah i listen to them you do hear it yeah i never listen to uh things i'm on to this oh yeah see i have the same idea yeah yeah i don't want to hear my voice
1: (laughs) i sound so different yeah in real life i sound great in my head Mm. in real life i'm like oh god how does anyone tolerate listening to that Voice and that accent.
2: Yeah, you're kind of in a Russell Crowe thing going on, you know, the like growliness in the voice. And the beard probably helps steer me that way as well.
1: <laughs> People are always asking me if I'm on the radio. And uh, I've gone through cycles in my life where I pretend I am on the radio. And uh, <laughs> I'm now in a cycle where I am not on the radio.
0: Fair. Yeah, we for these, we do a uh, mm. super scientific rating scale. Since we our mascot is a tentacled being, we do eight tentacles. So <laughs> you can rate it from like one is the worst thing you've ever had, and eight is like this is the best whiskey I've ever had. I'm never going to have anything else. And I guess I kind of skipped a uh, part where we
2: talk about it more. But since
0: we have different whiskeys, there's not we can't really talk about it. Well,
2: uh, <laughs> I mean, sure, we can all have perspective and talk about it. Mine had a very kind of corn maple uh, corn syrup smell to it a little bit it's a little weird Hmm. well maybe a little citrus there tasted it though and there's a lot of corn so i'm thinking this is young it's like very Mm. translucent so a little cinnamon not great i'm not i don't know i'm not feeling this one sorry guys (laughs) santan spirits i'll just go ahead since i have a different one yeah i'm gonna give it a like a two Ooh. Ooh. Yeah. Like I'll finish this glass, but, um, is this meant for cocktails potentially?
0: <laughs> well, the one we have is pretty good. I would say as not being a usual bourbon drinker, I think it's, uh, I would give it a six and a half. I think it's pretty good. You can definitely taste it. It's been in a truck. I feel like, like it's, <laughs> it's fun. <laughs> what do you think,
1: Max? Well, like, this is an eight for me because I, I really don't know much about whiskey and uh, don't typically enjoy it that much, I have to say. I know that maybe uh, that's the wrong thing to say on this podcast. But for me, this is extremely drinkable. I like it a lot. Maybe that's the problem. I haven't been spending enough on whiskey. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Maybe, yeah, I don't know. Maybe that is the problem. Well, I didn't know if you were doing whiskey with an E or without an E. Sometimes that's a difference, too. (laughs) But uh, given where you're currently located, I mean, trying some bourbons and rye seems like a good idea. Mm -hmm. Should get into it.
0: Yeah, he had sent a picture of uh, some Sagamore, actually, which is one of our favorites, which you might not have known. But uh, (laughs) we actually did a barrel pick of a Sagamore barrel. So we're fans of that for sure.
1: Yeah, I quite like that one. I got that one to smoke with cigars. Ah. Which uh has become a hobby of mine. My fiancé will only let me have one a week. <laughs> Normally I would like be like, I'll do what I want. <laughs> but um, you know, like she's right, shouldn't really mm. smoke that often. So
2: right. I'll allow this That's one. fair. <laughs> You'll concede that one, I was gonna say. The surgeon general would agree.
1: Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I'm in a cigar state, North Carolina.
2: Mm, yeah. It makes sense. Yeah. And smoking cigars, smoking meats, lots of smoking going on there.
1: Uh-huh. Something I plan to get into one day. Yeah.
2: Did you say you're in Raleigh?
1: Uh, yeah, near the front. Trom- like, you no, know, it's called the Triangle because of these three cities Chapel Hill, Durham, and Raleigh. And uh, we're well, closer to Durham than
2: Raleigh. Oh, okay. Yeah. I've been to Raleigh a couple of times, mostly to go to different restaurants. I used to live on the West Coast or the East Coast in DC we had some friends in Chapel Hill, so drive down there and then mm. bounce around the three cities to eat our way around the area.
1: Yeah, some good food, certainly. I've only been here a year, though, so I'm still getting the hang of it. Hmm.
2: We're getting
0: very into whatnot here with food. <laughs> I know. Let's uh, pivot back to the meat of what we're here for. Like that pun there? but um, <laughs> um So clever. Yeah, so uh, tell us about your new project with tea.
1: Oh, sure. Usually I have to talk like uh, 20 minutes before I can get to tea. (laughs) Um, So, you know, I quit Homebrew in about 2016. At that point, it was five years old and I'd, I'd dedicated like thousands of hours to it easily. It was the project I felt that I was put on this planet to make. It was an interesting ascent to being this essentially indispensable project that it's rare nowadays that you meet a developer who hasn't heard of it at least. And, you know, usually they use it. And like along the way, I kind of burned out and uh, I was like, I'm moving on. I'm doing other things. I was doing iPhone work a lot at the time. And, you know, obviously that was becoming like extremely, you know, it had already been for a few years, like a very lucrative profession for a programmer. Mm-hmm. Like honestly, I look back on the iPhone as like the pivotal moment really when development suddenly became cool because before, before the iPhone if you told people at a party that you were a developer, they'd like immediately start looking for an exit. Mm. And they'd be like, no, I don't, want, I don't want to talk to this geek. But then after the iPhone, they were like, oh, I've got an app idea. Yeah, And then you had to listen to that app idea for 10 minutes and then tell them that it was impossible because it required like some magic data that doesn't exist. That was usually the thing. Got a great app idea, like mm. a button that when you push it, it makes you happy. <laughs> <laughs>
2: right. I love the 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 whole, I've got a great app idea. I have no way, I have no money and I have no idea <laughs> how to do it. But could you help me for equity? You know, I'd, I'd definitely give you half yeah. for my idea. Yeah. There's a lot of that. Yeah. Yeah. All of us who were there. So I've been to those parties.
1: Yeah. yeah exactly. <laughs> We've all had that happen a few times for sure. And it's, it's difficult to know how to turn them down. Yeah. You know, gently, gracefully. Yeah. Yeah, so well, um, so I stopped and eventually left the governance committee as well. Like it was it's a very good open source success story in the respect that it built up a big community and that community like jumped in with both feet and were there to take over from me in a very successful way after I left the project. So I never thought I'd do it again. Honestly. In the years since people were like, You can make another brew. And uh, it's not as though like <laughs> I didn't have ideas for another brew. I've been extensively taking notes. Frankly, like this is like something I do. I whenever I have an idea, I have like I have to write it down. I have to put it in somewhere, and I have like large categorization system. So, like the idea of Brew Two was something that i had been working on for a while. But it was only last year when me and my uh, fiance were trying to get pregnant. It's the, it's the true part of this story. All right, and um, we were told by the gynecologist that it could take a year. So at the time I was working on some open source and trying to do like a micro SaaS and avoiding, trying to avoid going back into the industry, trying to avoid not like having the ability to power myself. So, uh, and I thought, oh, okay, that's fine. I've got a year to try and make a business, mm-hmm. uh, my micro SaaS or try and figure out how to monetize open source, which is something I've been interested in for years because I've always enjoyed working on open source more than anything else. Yeah. My homebrew was just incredibly fun for a lot of it, although it was incredibly hard work for a lot of the time too. Like while I was working on it, I was working on, I had two full-time jobs essentially because I'd go to work to uh, pay the bills and then uh, often at work be doing some, you know, merging a few pull requests or like uh, doing a little bit on the side. My employer didn't know. (laughs) they do now yeah <laughs> yeah well uh, i don't know we'll see <laughs> and um yeah get home and work like uh many parts of my life I've been a workaholic in many parts of my life i've also been the opposite completely I, I go between extremes so last year we got pregnant in a week rather than 12 months wow <laughs> I never felt so masculine in my life, I have to say. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I find that to be a surprising comment, but hey, I can get it to <laughs> you.
1: <laughs> so like, I woke up the next day after we like had a little celebration. I was like, in a cold sweat as I suddenly realized that I didn't know how I was going to provide for a family. Like, it's not something I'd really thought I had a year to figure something out. So I went through all my notes for like ideas I had for startups because was like, okay, I have a few friends I could start a startup with. Let's figure out if there is something in here with legs enough. And um, well, I always thought that maybe there was a way to make a company out of something like Brutu. So I noodled it. And then I started diving into Web3 stuff because my friend, Timothy Lewis, has been trying to get me into cryptography, um, cryptocurrencies and That for a while, and it was only when he he phoned me up like last year and said, "Hey, we're calling it Web three now." (laughs) I was like, "Oh, hang on a minute!" So I was like, obviously incredulous because if you if you're going to call it something like Web plus one, then like that's quite a big call, quite a big ask. But also like having the guts to call it that, you got to pay attention. You got like have a look, see what they're talking about. So when I looked into it, there was certainly stuff there that I didn't realise was there. Like how far things had gone with smart contracts and the idea of being able to like make money essentially like a programming primitive. Well, that was very interesting. And uh, I dove into that. And then it was like one day when I was playing around with like buying an NFT on OpenSea and I saw how the person I bought it from got 10% of the royalties automatically. And that was like guaranteed by the smart contracts on the chain. I was like, oh, well, this is interesting. And then I had a moment of inspiration where I could see how the open source ecosystem with all its dependencies and all its packages could be similarly compensated where if someone puts some money into the ecosystem, you could start pushing bits of that to all the dependencies in the chain. Essentially that's the essence of what we're doing at T. And I uh, found my, uh, my friend, Timothy Lewis I was like, well, what do you think of this idea? And he said, I'll get back to you. <laughs> and then like the next thing I know, we're like having meetings and pitching it to investors And, uh, well, we've raised 18 million so far.
2: Oh, nice.
1: Oh, wow. It turns out that uh, the idea of a tool that combines these things, like the reach of brew with, like, the possibility of funding open source and how it works, because, like, open source powers the internet Mm. in reality. And, you know, developers, all developers, like, feel bad. They're not helping to fund that because the vast majority don't but it's partly because it's so difficult to i remember i have this um other open source project called promise kit and at its peak it was used by 100 iphone apps including netflix and mcdonald's and like, i never even got so much as like a free netflix subscription yeah at the time i was thinking like if every one of those apps just gave me one dollar a year then that would easily allow me to work in open source. Now, you know, it's not a great salary for a developer, but it's a good salary still, and I would have taken it. So, you know, that was the the essence of the uh, the concepts and the, the thinking that there's a way to channel just very small amounts of payments into the system Then you can fund it, because there's so much use and not as much open source. So, yeah, T is Brutu with a cryptocurrency backing, like essentially we're putting the package registry on chain and using digital contracts to remunerate the open source ecosystem.
2: So essentially it rectifies the position of corporate entities or even like you mentioned a couple of large corporate entities of taking too much advantage of open source contributions, right? They come into the community, they utilize all the good work, and then I kind of never contribute to that in most ways yeah right just trying to like close that gap yeah it's sort of like uh it reminds me of speaking of like open source contribution where someone rage quit <laughs> based on like that very kind of feedback i don't know you remember the or did you see anything about the the faker js guy who basically like yeah yeah burned the package and on his way out and it was about yeah. you know and he'd complained over the last few years so he was ready anyway he'd said like XYZ company is making millions off of my hard work and it's not cool. Yeah. So,
1: yeah. Exactly. Um, there is a lot of these people when they're taken for granted in many ways. So I don't think it's fair to say that they don't give back at all. A lot of these companies are trying to give back. It's just very difficult to do so. Like I used the promise kit example. Like, uh, there was one year where this German company said, hey, we, we really like promise kit. Let us sponsor you. And it took us two weeks of back and forth to figure out how to do it. Now, this was admittedly before GitHub sponsors. Mm-hmm. That makes it simpler now, right? providing it's there. But putting money towards everything you use open source-wise, like we estimate there's 200,000 open source packages. And probably that's like a factor of two or so, too low, honestly. But in reality, probably only a third to half of that is actually important to keeping everything running like microsoft or facebook or google or like any of these big companies they probably use like a, an awful lot like thousands tens of thousands of packages it's not really reasonable for them to figure out how to compensate all those devs. so in reality you need this kind of system you need some kind of automated system where token that enters it or you know money can be distributed in a fair but equitable fashion yeah, I can see where
2: there's kind of incentives on both ends, like on one side as a consumer of open source, if you're making like micro payments in based on what you're using. And then conversely, now you're incentivizing people to make more time for open source contributions or to feel good about it outside of like the community side of it. Like, yeah. you know, like it or not, money moves the world around in a way. And if you can make, make, simplify it on both sides, like you said, like how much time is Facebook going to spend trying to compensate contributors to packages that have helped them build a business and build their own contributions out there. Right. It's difficult. And then you're sort of like, well, we have to run a business, so we can't do that. So if you're simplifying that for them, then that incentivizes them to partake in it, I think.
1: Yeah, well, absolutely. I, I believe that, well, It's going to be two-factor, honestly. It's like, finally, there's uh, a system that makes it easy for them to do, to contribute. So I see projects and people who are involved in these communities putting large amounts of pressure on these companies because they'll be like, hey, Microsoft, now there exists an easy way for you to donate like 5 million a year, 10 million a year, whatever, to the open source you use because the T tool, it's a package manager it knows what the staff and Microsoft are using and we can collect that data and then make it so it's easily accessible for them. We're not going to take it from them. It's not going to like phone home or anything. It's just like they can have their staff run this command and it will say, okay, your staff is using this amount, this bunch of stuff. And so then we can just inject that into um, a wallet app and have it push the money there into the right places. So I see like the community putting pressure on these companies and these companies feeling obligated. But also, like, you and I who uh, use open source and make the most of it, we can just put whatever amount of money we want in a year and know it's going to the software that we actually use. So that make use sort of without us having to think too much about it. That having to like wait until NPM says, hey, this project's starved for funding. Can you please give it some you already are. Yeah. Every developer on the planet just put five bucks in. It would be enough. It's the truth of the matter. So yeah, we're hoping that it's not just going to be the corporate interests, but they're a good target because as you say, they've made a lot of money using this software that a lot of us have given away for free. Like, I personally never expected anything in return for doing it. All I wanted was the opportunity to continue working on it without having to make compromises. On what I worked on, I keep saying that yeah. if T existed, I wouldn't have built T because this is the thing that I'm building in order to make it so that other people can work on open source full time. Like what I'd really like to see is for it to become like an economy that is valuable enough that engineers at Facebook and Microsoft and all the, the other big companies that pay so well find that they could quit and earn just as much money by working on open source, contributing to the software that makes the world run. I feel it's kind of criminal, really, that they're wasting their talents, some of these people, on making sure that ads show up in the right places or that people are liking the right kind of content. It's not a good use of very intelligent people's time.
2: Yeah. Yeah. That's the hustle, though. I I definitely had to do... Plenty of that working in media for a while. Well, it was like mid-career, I guess, give or take. So, yeah, I, I definitely understand and empathize with what you're touching on there. You know, conversely, I wonder another point that you made that I think is pretty interesting is it's not about just educating corporations and facilitating corporations in ways. But like, I wonder, because we know that like the engineering job market is exploding in lots of ways will probably continue to do so those are the trends like going forward so people can get into positions earlier in their career a bit more easily because there's so much demand so like educating them you know accelerators to computer science grads are they learning about open source communities and sort of like the skills that get them the job to make the things, including the like buttons or whatever else, like understanding that like there's a debt of gratitude to a lot of work that's gone down. That would be an interesting side to it, too. So like and I'm getting somewhere here, really more about like you're giving the platform to provide that. But what about like the education side of it?
1: Really? Yeah, well, that's a very interesting question. Now, in 2014, 2015, I worked at a boot camp because it was one of my strategies for uh, working on open source half the time. So I did half my time teaching. And, well, I found that I really enjoyed teaching. I didn't want to stop, honestly. But the bottom fell out of the bootcamp market because it was a bit of a scam in some ways. Like You can't (laughs) learn to program in 10 weeks, is the truth of it. Right. It was really hard looking some people in the eyes and telling them they had a chance when you knew that they just didn't have it. Yeah, And they spent like 10 grand on this bootcamp. I wasn't making the choices on the pricing, but that was, that was what it was at the time. So, you know, when I did that, they certainly didn't have an awareness of open source. It was just a bunch of software that was there. And, I, you know, people are used to free software, especially like post-iPhone and app store markets where the race to the bottom of everything is free. So they don't really appreciate it. They take it for granted as it being there. But that's never really... Bothered me, honestly. Some people do feel some kind of entitlement to credit. And I'm very happy with the fact that I made something that was significant and some people know my name as a result of it. I'm very glad that, as an aside, it's only the tech community that I'm only tech famous, is what I say. (laughs) I'd hate to be real famous. (laughs) I don't even really want to be tech famous, but like you have to be with open source. Like if you, if you don't put your name out there, it's like the projects need a face, really. All the most successful open source projects have a face. Someone that, you know, represents what's being built. So it's kind of necessary.
0: Yeah, a face or a Facebook.
2: Right. Because Facebook projects do well. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, I was just say good marketing there. I would just say just evangelizing, guess, good marketing and just talking about your thing as much as possible. I I have a feeling, a small inkling, that's one of the reasons why you're here on this podcast.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, definitely. Uh, we've been uh, searching for various ways to get the message out because like, we're pre-release. Uh, we're releasing probably November 3rd.
3: Hmm.
1: So I was uh, hardcore working on the code just before this, and um, we'll attempt to hardcore work on the uh, the code after this, but with the whiskey, maybe that won't be so successful. <laughs> <laughs> Although I find I don't know about you guys, uh, I find that you there is certain kinds of code you can do mm-hmm. when you've had a few.
2: Yeah, it's the Balmer effect. Did you ever see that XKCD? Oh yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like it gets better, it gets better, it gets better. Oh crap. <laughs>
3: mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, I found that to be the case often. I used to moonlight a lot and code into the night and yeah, was like, it's awesome, it's awesome, oh, I'm getting things done. And then I knew when I was like, oh, looks like this isn't going to work out, so I should just stop now.
0: Yeah. Yeah. If you hit a hard bug, it's hard to debug if you've had a few whiskeys. Mm. But if you're doing stuff you understand, you can just crank through it.
1: That's 100% true, in my opinion, yeah. Like usually uh, you end up with that thing you just can't figure out and then the next morning it's like this is not that difficult (laughs) who wrote this yeah (laughs) yeah that and that
2: too Uh, blame did not say me that's what i say
1: i never recognise my code there's so many times i've gone on to slack to criticize like my staff for like writing some bad code and they're like you wrote that (laughs) i'm not a good boss in, in many ways i have to say
2: Yeah, but, you know, your outlook is so positive from what I've experienced thus far. So, I mean, I appreciate that. Yeah. That's the dry British humor I was hoping you would (laughs) latch onto a little bit. I'd love to be a positive person. It's just not in in your DNA. Let me tell you, I've spent a decent amount of time in England, so it's not there. Yeah. (laughs) I love the place. I think it's awesome. If it didn't rain like every day, then I would probably live there.
1: Yeah. I wonder if i'll retire back there i've been in the states 10 years Mm -hmm. and the idea of like buying a little cottage in the countryside near a pub and retiring there and like walking around the country looking at the sheep getting some british beers and i love british beer i really miss that almost didn't leave england because i was like this is the only place you can get british beer Mm. no one else in the world appreciates it
2: so okay now Having had lots of that, <laughs> so there's certain one you can you definitely get some things here in Arizona. I can get Boddington's, mm-hmm. for example. So,
1: when I can find Boddington's on tap, oof. I keep going back. Yeah, yeah, you can get some of them, but I'm talking about like uh, real ale is what the Brits call it.
2: Yeah, the cask ales that mm-hmm. they like, pour out and they're room temperature, and Americans complain about it, cellar mm-hmm. temperature. Yeah, that was the funniest thing. The first time I was there, I was staying with some friends in Leeds and go out to the pubs or whatever. And if you got like Heineken or whatever else, it was labeled as super cold Heineken. And I always thought that was kind of funny. <laughs> like,
1: yeah, I never thought about that. It's true.
2: Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. So that's an in- interesting bit about that that I observed, right? I never considered that it's it's not actually super cold. It's just relative to the rest of British beer. <laughs>
2: yeah, yeah. For me, it was like normal beer cold. I didn't find it any colder than any other Heineken I'd had. But then, yeah, you get, oh, that's amusing. Yeah, Cascales. Cascales are an interesting, fun experience. I like pasties. Love those. Mm-hmm. But the key is, where are you from?
1: Uh, well, South London is is where I was born and raised. Okay. So first 18 years of my life there, it's kind of boring. It's Croydon is the the borough, which is the biggest borough of London. And in my opinion, it's probably the shittest. <laughs> 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 uh, so it must be on the east side then, right? Southeast, is that? south? It's very south. Right next- Just straight south. Right next to Surrey. Mm,
2: I have heard of Surrey.
1: I hear it's better nowadays, but I think it's telling that all the friends I grew up with have moved <laughs> away, almost all of them. They're either elsewhere in England or elsewhere in Europe, or a lot of them are in the States. A lot of, uh, Interesting. A lot of Brits moved to the States.
2: Yeah, well, you know, American women love those accents, so.
1: <laughs> I honestly can't argue against that. <laughs> <laughs> I moved here for an American woman, so. <laughs> right. I made some assumptions and we got there. <laughs> Football or no? The thing I don't miss about the UK is the obsession with soccer. hmm So uh, I was never that into it in the slightest. I was actually okay at playing it. I was always okay at playing various sports. Yeah. But never very interested in them. And like, yeah, like my friends would be like, let's go to the pub and watch the game. I'd be like, oh, sure. And I had no idea what the game was going to be. Oh, that's I got there and I was like, all right, it's an England game. I should probably have known that England were playing something or other, but like, no. Um, not really my thing, so right. it's actually neat being in the States as a Brit because all your sports are different, and I can just go, like, oh, I'm British, but I don't understand them. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm not expected to understand them.
2: Yeah, they're like, oh, it's okay. I know. So I'm the anomaly because I follow European football mm. soccer whatever and most people here follow other sports and then they'll always talk to me about like nfl or college football and stuff and i'm like yeah i don't yeah i don't really watch that one. Oh, oh you're a weirdo mm-hmm. you're out
1: <laughs> yeah sorry i feel you <laughs> yeah
2: we should just trade play if you get a place over there and then we should just swap you can live in arizona the weather is great in the winter <laughs> i love that it's gonna be like t-shirt weather in the winter but uh Summer's a little rough.
1: Yeah, like Arizona's the kind of place that I would like to own some property there so that we can go in the winter. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the I did a road trip from uh, San Francisco to Savannah, Georgia a few years back. And uh, in August, and going through Texas in August and Utah, we didn't get... No, we did get to Arizona. Just the tip, though. Uh, we went to see the... Just for a second. Yeah, like we crossed over. <laughs> trying to get as many states in over there. But yeah, like the, the heat was phenomenal. So it's really quite crazy. I don't know how you tolerate it. Yeah, yeah. I mean,
2: Utah has some of that. Vegas is exactly the same kind of weather patterns as here. The fun part about Arizona is that two-thirds of it is not desert. So actually, most of it is higher elevation, gets snow, has evergreen trees, all that kind of fun stuff. So I didn't know that. Prove it. Okay. <laughs> well, I, right now? Yep. Uh, go to weather.com and look up Flagstaff, Arizona. Nope. It says Arizona is desert. Oh, okay.
1: <laughs> all of it. So do you live in the uh, the desert or the
2: snow? I do. I live in Phoenix, basically. And if we want snow, though, we could just drive up there. It's not a big deal. You know, we, everybody has pools and air conditioning, so you don't die. But, you know, it's hot. And after it drowns on for a little while, you're like still 100. Uh, but then every Christmas, you're like, oh, it's snow, that's weird. I have a T-shirt on. I don't say it in that accent at all, but, uh, yeah, what was that? you know, in general, yeah, I don't know. That was a gloating voice. Mm. It's for radio. Okay. <laughs> so you touched on it a little bit that you took a long road trip, uh, purposes of moving around the country. And you said you've done that a number of times in your 10 years here. So mm-hmm. what up with that?
1: Yeah. Well, I think I'm in, uh, North Carolina to stay,
0: perhaps. You like that swampiness?
1: You know, you're staying when, like, you start paying attention to the uh, the politics that are going on, and I'm like mm. I'm paying attention to who I'm voting for,
2: right, right.
1: And um, never really did that before, so that makes a difference. But yeah, I started off my U.S. journey in Michigan near Grand Rapids because mm-hmm. uh, the girl I married uh, was grew up there. And that was 2012, and then we moved to Chicago, and probably we should have stayed there. Honestly, really large Chicago, apart from the winters, were, like, abysmal. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, real rough. My birthday's in May, and one year it snowed on my birthday. I was like, why are we here? <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah, that makes sense. If you like to be outdoors in any way, including outside of your residence, then
1: yeah. not a great place when it's cold. But it has a great vibe like we really loved the people we met there and like the culture of the place yeah but well that was when i had the the boot camp that i worked out and then uh one month i forget near summer they decided they couldn't afford me anymore and uh you know the bomb was pulling out of the, the boot camps essentially they're all getting bought up by the bigger ones and uh it wasn't as possible anymore the gold rush on the app store it was closing up a bit and um, this annoyed me because I really enjoyed the work. And then I was like, okay, so what am I going to do now? And my wife at the time was like, why don't you reply to Google and all those emails they're always sending you trying to recruit you. Hmm. And so I did. I always used her as an excuse because I wouldn't have done it otherwise. <laughs> so I replied and they rushed me to interview because of homebrew. Right. And uh, well, I didn't get the job. I had my my seven interviews that day. And the first one was this hardcore computer science question. And I don't have computer science. I have a chemistry degree. I fell into programming because I didn't like working in the chemical industry. I did a whole chemistry degree. And then I went into industry and I discovered that actually chemistry is really boring. (laughs) (laughs) The actual study of it, I found interesting. But the application of it is you spend years on the same stuff. Mm-hmm. So I felt, fell back on programming because I knew that was somewhere where you could do things really quickly. So that's how I got into open source that way. I installed Linux. I worked on uh, some open source in the Linux world for the the desktop environment, KDE. Mm-hmm. I got to know the community there. And that, that's how I fell in love with open source. And it was through that I got a job at a London startup in programming. So I did, I never had the degree. They saw some of the work I've been doing and they liked it. So they just offered me a job without, you know, the usual tests and everything else. Yeah. uh, So when I applied to Google, I told the recruiter, I don't know computer science. You know that, right? I don't have a computer science degree. So you're not going to ask me a bunch of computer science questions when I get there.
2: Algorithm Mm -hmm. bullcrap. Yeah.
1: And like the first interview I had that day was inverting a binary tree. Mm. Nope. Yeah, I I couldn't do it. Didn't know what to do. I had a good attempt. I basically understood what was going on and, like, tried. And then, like, the interviewer stopped me after a bit. And she was like, okay, we're just going to stop. <laughs> I was like, well, I can't, I can't be doing that well.
2: <laughs> yeah. I can remember a funny tweet that you put out. Now that you bring yeah. this up, I remember there was, like, a really funny tweet that went viral about that mm. very thing. Like, yeah, oh, yeah, you failed the homebrew guy. <laughs> you all use homebrew, isn't that ironic?
1: Yes, so well, I will get to the tweet in a sec, I guess I might as well finish it. yeah, yeah. The day I had like seven interviews, and I say like four of them actually like the the people interviewing me chose deliberately like software architecture questions, and I did pretty well no, those because that's actually what I'm good at mm-hmm. uh, among you know other things. But yeah, I kind of felt that I didn't get it. And so they phoned me a week later and they're like, I'm sorry, we can't offer you this position. I knew that was coming, really. But I immediately went to Twitter and wrote out this tweet. <laughs> like, because it did seem a bit silly at the same time. It's like, surely they could have used me for something. And like, with hindsight, that's absolutely the case. But I'm glad yeah. that I'm not there. But anyway, like, at the time I had like maybe 600 followers on twitter so i didn't expect anything and then like a week later i had twenty five thousand <laughs> followers and i've been on hacker news like several times and the tweet has got like five or six million impressions at this point yeah i've almost deleted the tweet several times because i kind of feel bad <laughs> i wasn't trying to shame them you know and like, i'm not the kind of person who like wants that kind of attention but i made a lot of people happy yeah.
2: I, it made me happy. And I've been on the other side of that equation in terms of like being someone who's hiring people and hiring talent and like looking at what that kind of means. And I know that like, I guess from a Google perspective, it's a pretty like wide net and they're like, come in here and then we just we have our qualifications for excellence and then you get a lot of freedom. But it seems like that they weren't able, you know, there's there's obviously gaps in that. And on the other side of it, like having been a manager, director, whatever else and building teams and hiring people and stuff. And I always think about like, if I put them through algorithms for what we're doing, like it doesn't really make a lot of sense, right? Like I just need to make sure that they can do the job that we're doing. Yeah. Let's pair. Or let's, you know, go through some problems that are happening in real life in the, in the application we're working on or something like that. Like that seems like the best metric for success. And maybe, you know, because Google is just like, we want to just get all what we think the best talent is and then figure out where they go and what they work on later. Maybe that's like the flaw in their process, but uh, Mm -hmm. I loved it. I don't know. I just thought it was like exactly whiteboarding is stupid. Mm -hmm. Whiteboarding is for, you know, you're a computer science person. You want to get your PhD? Great. Here's a step in doing that. Or I don't know. (laughs) Like what else is the point? I'm good at math. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Well,
0: Yeah. The problem is these big companies have so much process that you're not going to get them to stop doing that. It doesn't matter who you are. Like yeah. Mark Zuckerberg could be like, I want a job at Google. And they'd be like, all right, do these algorithms. Like <laughs> it doesn't matter who you are and they can't bend the process. Like there should be a way for them to say, look, this person we really want. We want to skip the process, but they just don't let you.
1: Yeah. Well, to be fair to Google, like, I had friends there who told me that it actually, the tweet caused them to revisit their process and give it some thought. And I did have a couple of offers come through from other departments at Google afterwards. And they were like, we don't care (laughs) uh, about the tweet or that you can't do this. We know you're good at this. And so we'll hire you, presumably with a a less sadistic interview process. So, you know, they, they were aware, I think, and that's why I feel bad as well. But mm. it was good for me. Over three hundred job offers in my email, <laughs> like over the next few weeks, and so I picked where I worked next. Nice, and that was Apple. Oh, which lasted a year.
3: Mm.
2: Well,
1: <laughs> that's interesting, though. I mean, that's kind of nice by choice. It lasted a year, or no? Like, I thought it was my dream job. I really did. Like um, I've been an Apple fanboy for quite a few years. At that point, I'm less of an Apple fanboy nowadays, for sure. Like my operating system order was window well early in that BBC Micro which was this computer in Britain that only existed in Britain mm-hmm. they basically ran a, a variety of basic as its um, shell and that's what got me into programming then I got Windows 3.1 and so I was Windows until like I don't know XP probably then I uh, switched to Linux because I was disillusioned with chemistry and I wanted to find out what open source was and I was with Linux until One day when I had like this issue where my Wi-Fi driver just wouldn't work after I upgraded and I didn't have the internet to help me debug it and I was stuck by myself and uh, it took me two days to get the internet back.
3: Mm.
1: I was like, I'm fed up with this shit. (laughs) (laughs) So... You know, I knew OS X was Unix, and that was the thing I really liked about Linux. I discovered, like over the years of using it, it's like Unix is the part which is just brilliant, and it resonates with me, and I love it. And like that's been the case for my whole career. So like, I love the origin story of Unix. I love how they built a series of composable tools that work so well together and make it possible to do so much. But these tools individually are simple. I think it's beautiful and everything I do in open source, I always take the Unix approach as far as I'm concerned. Like they pioneered the right way to do software.
2: Sounds like microservices architecture in a way. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah,
1: like that should in a respect appeal to me, but I don't don't go as low as that level usually, honestly. Interesting.
0: Yeah, I had a similar path of like, you know, Windows, everyone used Windows first. It was the ubiquitous thing, I feel like. And then you dabble with Linux and you're like, this is fun. I like this. I like that the terminal makes way more sense than it does in Windows. And then you're like, wow, I wish this were just prettier and worked all the time. And then you go to Mac. <laughs> like, it's just, <laughs> yeah. it's just an always working Linux machine, basically.
1: Mm, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 That was really it. I've always had a bit of a design bent. I almost went into industrial design rather than chemistry. And I'm glad I didn't because um, all of this wouldn't have happened, I'm pretty sure. So I've always been like appealed to a user experience and a UI that, that makes sense and putting time into that. And that was the thing that frustrated me about working with Linux so much is that most people didn't give two shits. Uh, like everything was messy and there were different user interface paradigms everywhere. At least at the command line level, there was more consistency in a way, because there had to be, these tools had to be able to talk to each other. So you had to have the standard input and standard output in a, a few different, but very similar formats, like usually the white space separated or null terminated so separated and tools that could work with that. That makes sense. So, you know, uh, I got my three over 300 recruitment emails and there was some pretty interesting ones in there. And I probably should have gone to SpaceX really with hindsight. (laughs)
2: Yeah, I don't know. Well, yeah, I mean, I don't know. Plus and minuses. Yeah, there's definitely some cool things there. But you hear as an engineer or just an employee that it can be a difficult work atmosphere. So, yeah, I love the stuff Elon's doing. And I know that's a controversial comment, maybe in some circles, but. I don't know. He's innovating. I
1: admire the man.
2: Yeah.
0: It's easy to innovate when you have a team of people doing 80 hours a week of work <laughs> for you. <laughs> but yes, he is smart.
1: Yeah, indeed. I probably wouldn't have been able to do 80 hours a week at the time. Was married, but uh, would have wanted to, probably. Like, you know, he's yeah going to space and uh, it's difficult to get away from the appeal of actually going to space. I didn't get the GitHub badge for getting code onto Mars. <laughs> and that really annoys me. <laughs> <laughs>
2: oh, gamification
1: works. I'm like, how could nothing I wrote got onto Mars? But yeah, like they weren't running homebrew on the rover, apparently, right? obviously.
2: Installing packages manually, I guess. Yeah, or <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Some workaround. I used to work for Acquia. And uh, so they're like, they're known as the Drupal company because their founder created Drupal and then commoditized that open source. And Tesla is a client and apparently Drupal was somehow involved in their OS for Tesla cars. Really? I don't know the specifics. I wasn't on that project and, hadn't, you know, I never touched Drupal in my life. I was working on some like uh, marketing SaaS stuff for them or managing teams around that. But
0: does that mean Shepherd Tours are coming to the Tesla next? Because
2: Drupal uses Shepard now. (laughs) Right. But I mean, Drupal on the admin side is never going to be on a vehicle, right? So it might be somewhere else and interconnected to what they push to the main OS.
0: I thought it was a package that you built. Like... Drupal? Like the stuff that the person puts in the CMS, right? Would end up in your tour is what I was thinking. Not that it was on the admin side. But maybe I'm wrong.
2: Oh, well... I don't know. I never pursued how deeply that went, but I know that uh, Tesla uses Drupal and it's somehow interconnected to the OS in a vehicle. Gotcha.
1: It's funny how uh, some of these bad calls end up propagating all over the place so I don't mean Drupal's <laughs> sorry so I'm sure uh, the
2: Drupal I didn't create Drupal I don't care creator <laughs> yeah sorry Dries you and Max can come on the show and duke it out I don't know he looks like a burly guy though so I don't like your chances
1: <laughs> well the internet prevents any damage
2: there's a side note so how tall are you
1: not very tall 25'7 mm.
2: oh me only mm. you mean oh huge 5'7 <laughs> such as one of the hosts of this show.
1: Well, you know, if you want to get into the height thing, like uh, whenever I meet someone who knows of me from beforehand, the first thing they say is, I thought you would be taller <laughs> every time. Yeah. So, you know, people just expect it, yeah. basically. But I don't think I could have been successful of the internet because everyone would have been prejudging me as, oh, he's a short guy. He <laughs> can't be that. Mm by like the internet everyone's a dog right so like no one knew i was short <laughs> but you know i've never let it like bother me that much but there definitely is a psychology thing people think taller people are more confident more capable more successful and so it's uh, self uh, self actualizing in a way yes. right you have to work harder if you're short Yeah, and and there's
2: studies and Forbes will say like, oh, taller executives tend to make 6% more Mm -hmm. than anyone under 5'9 or something like that. Yeah, I've I've read all those things in the past. It's because they beat up the people that make the salaries. (laughs) (laughs) Right, there you go. I don't know, you know, like short man syndrome, you you definitely, you're okay to punch up. Mm
1: -hmm. (laughs) We have to, like, if anything is character building, but well. My fiance is taller than me and that was deliberate. <laughs> Let's just say <laughs> Yeah. It's like getting some taller genes in there so at least my son doesn't have to uh go through some of the same things.
2: That's hilarious. My wife is like a half inch or so taller than I am, and she's the shortest of her mm-hmm. family her immediate family, and then has some height in there. And I said the same exact thing. Uh we gotta
1: breed <laughs> up out of this. Yeah. It's like, you know, it's not that bad. No. Like there's certainly worse things that you can start life with and uh not ending up so tall but it's a thing so i i didn't want it to be a thing for my kid essentially yeah, yeah. that's fair so yeah i love my fiance but like yeah i did pick her Polly because she's tall
2: <laughs> 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 oh i love it yeah i mean it's just it's plus other things of course i'm sure is what you meant
1: she's wonderful she really is so i'm really quite lucky because yeah like i was married before Came to the States on a K-1 visa, Mm. met a girl in London who was from America. And, uh, you know, it didn't work out. In the end, we were together 10 years. overall, eight years married. We gave it a good shot. Yeah. Saw a lot of different states together. We moved around a lot. But I say this to other people. It's like, honestly, I think part of the reason that it went on so long is because we kept moving state. Mm. And that kind of reset the relationship to a certain extent. It's so starting again in a new place because fundamentally we weren't good together at all. Mm. <laughs> she just wasn't quite tall enough. Just get, <laughs> yeah. <there you> go. <laughs> she was 5'10". Uh, she was pretty tall. Is she dead? no no. okay that's good i hope not at least <laughs> <laughs> it
2: was 510
1: <5'10. laughs> she was
2: 510 she
1: l- lost yeah. her legs uh she's dead i don't
2: know this is all going but
1: like i hope not i haven't spoken to her in a while so like i assume she's still alive <laughs> she actually lives in arizona
2: hmm.
1: oh that's f- actually now yeah
2: small world yeah. It's okay there's like a few million people here so i don't know her Yeah, I'm fairly certain of that.
1: No, I I assume not. (laughs)
2: Probably has a terracotta roof. Yes, I would (laughs) bet if you're in. Well, I don't have a terracotta roof. Oh, really? Yeah, no, I I bought in like a more historic area. There's a lot of mid-century modern in like in the like main areas. But if you start to go outside, it would be like the bridge and tunnel equivalent, Robbie. But like if you go to the outskirts cities, which are still part of Phoenix, but it'll be like Chandler, Tempe, Mesa. They're building all these subdivisions and they're all terracotta roofs. They're all like tan houses. They're all like this close from each other. Yeah. Spanish style. Yeah. No, we didn't do that. We bought a mid century house. Nice. We got a little space. So yeah, a little space, a little walkability. That was my comeback from DC living in the city compromise.
0: Yeah. We're going to move soon. Probably.
2: So of course you are. (laughs) Yeah. He doesn't go too far. Don't, don't be too impressed by him. Like,
0: (laughs) Yeah, no, we, we have to stay in Virginia. Another part of Virginia. Because I've always lived in Virginia, and I've never had to change my license, and I don't want to do that process, so.
1: <laughs> it is a bitch.
0: Yeah. It really is. I've, I've done, done almost it go to the DMV four times. It's terrible. Oh. Yeah.
1: Oh, yeah.
0: Yeah, I had to, uh, but we'll uh, we'll probably just move, like, so we were in, like, near D.C., and we moved, like, an hour or more out into the country, decided we have too much land and stuff to maintain, and we're far from stuff, so we're going to move in between the two, like, 30 minutes from D.C. So that's the plan.
1: <laughs> that's pretty sensible. Yeah. And Yeah, like you don't want to change your license. It always takes hours. You have to book it in advance. Then they don't know what they're doing. And it's difficult. And then you have to retake parts of your driver's license test. And uh, I still, after being in the States 10 years, do not understand U.S. signage. <laughs> so I almost always fail <laughs> on that bit. Like th- this time around, the guy like liked me because he lived in England for a bit. And we'd been chatting about that for a while. Yeah. And I think I probably failed. And he was like, ah, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's funny. Yeah, you'll get
2: by. You'll be fine here. Yeah. I too love chips as fries and not crisps.
1: So, you know, that's all it took. took me a while to get the hang of uh, those word differences. And I still think I do a lot of them wrong. And people just, like, don't really understand what I'm saying in general anyway. Mm. Like, congratulations, you guys seem to be. Understanding me fairly well. <laughs> yeah.
0: No, I think you haven't had anything weird that I've noticed, because we've had a, a couple of like Irish and British people on and they do have a few different words, but I haven't heard you use anything that I was like, Well, that's different
2: than I would have said. So I just take offense <laughs> to the fact that that my name, so obviously my name is Charles, but most people call me Chuck. That's the short version. That's to throw something away. Listen, I'm not trash. Okay. <laughs> that's the one I want to be clear. I'm not trash. <laughs>
1: my you said I don't know what i would have thought otherwise
2: <laughs> yeah of course <laughs> i mean we've had an hour conversation you you know you can draw your own conclusions but <laughs> yeah
0: so uh yeah speaking of it being almost an hour here we're about at time i guess we didn't officially say like where people can find tea or how they can get into it do you want to plug some of that or anything else
1: yeah let's do a brief plug we managed to get t.xyz which was uh nice especially because we didn't pay a domain scammer (laughs) for it it was available because you have to pay a lot of money for an xyz domain that's short Mm -hmm. so that's how it should be you know like it's ridiculous anyway i could go on for ages about domain scammers so txyz go there authenticate with t using your github because there will be a token reward next year when we launch the protocol, so if you're not familiar with cryptocurrency, you know since since effectively we instantiate our own currency, we can give it out where we please. So our objective is to give it to developers as the initial sort of handout, and uh, from an economics perspective, this actually makes a lot of sense. It turns out I've learned so much about economics doing this. So it's uh, one of the more interesting parts of it. And um, it turns out like blockchain and protocol work is all about incentives, and game theory, essentially. So it's very interesting in that respect. A lot of people, I think, have been turned off by it because of all the scams in Web3. And like, God knows, there are are so many. But T, we really feel, is a genuine good utility on top of what cryptocurrency can provide. So, yeah, go there, then go with T. And, well, we're planning to release the package manager in early November. Not sure when this podcast will go live. Around then. So you'll either be late or slightly early or on time. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I've been working on it for like nine months. It's
2: two weeks from now. I think it'll be perfect because it's usually about two weeks. So it'll be like right before, but just like right before the best time to like, boom, launch it out. And
1: At this point, like the day set in stone. Uh, we're going to Web Summit in Lisbon and we're going to release it then during the event. Nice. Just pretty nice. Pretty nice tool. So at the very least, you want to check it out. Yes, I think that most people will feel that this is something that they can see how they could use it. And that you know, that's why i did with Brew. Like it was, it was always something that I needed. And this is already I'm finding new ways to like use software, be a programmer, be a developer because of uh, T. What I built with T. That's awesome. So yeah, figure it out. Cool.
0: All right. Well, thanks, everybody, for listening. If you liked it, subscribe, give us some ratings and reviews. We appreciate it. And we'll catch you next time.
2: Thanks for listening to Whiskey Web and whatnot. This podcast is brought to you by ShipShape and produced by Podcast Royale. If you like this episode, consider sharing it with a friend or two and leave us a rating, maybe a review, as long as it's good.
0: You can subscribe to future episodes on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. For more info about Shipshape and this show, check out our website at shipshape.io.